0: Hebrews chapter 6. We we're hurriedly worked through four, verses 4 to 8. I don't know that we need to go back over that. But uh, we certainly can start with verse 9. What is your pleasure? Verse 4 or verse 9? Actually, not really. I
1: defer.
0: <laughs> you defer. <laughs> Let somebody else make up your mind. Huh? <laughs> Chapter six. It's chapter six, Gene. Yes, chapter six. And I we're we're toggling between verse four and verse nine, trying to make up our mind which one to start with. I'd
2: vote for four. I'd vote for four because one of the individuals we're praying for, we were having this conversation basically about once saved, always saved. And I, you know, this this kind of talks about that a little bit, yeah. Uh, you know that there there's a possibility. And anyway, I would like to have um, uh, your you guys' thoughts if you see that this verse in in that way to say you know it's possible to have all this information and fall away, and then what hope is there after that falling away? I'd I'd love to hear.
0: Well, having seen people, having seen people actually fall away, they never. I've never seen them come back. It's like, it's, I, I think it really literally has to do with the pathways in our brain. Mm-hmm. Once we sever that pathway to truth, we can't get back to it. The and, the and what stops us, I think, in addition to what happens in our brains, is our pride. It's uh, mm-hmm. too humbling to have to back up and start over. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
4: I, think, I think it has to do with the effect that you you describe is you can't unknow something. Mm -hmm. So we start out with ignorance. You know, we're just, we're born ignorant and predisposed to distrust God. But once you've seen that that's not true,
3: Mm -hmm.
4: once you've had the conviction, once you've actually embraced the truth and felt the transformation, and then you choose Go back into fear. You choose that power of choice is uh, destructive.
0: Actually,
3: the
4: capacity t- to change your
0: mind. The two people I'm thinking of who who uh, they didn't go back to fear. They went on to something called self-worship.
5: I've I've seen that a lot in highly educated people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we all know people like that that have good degrees and they become pretty self-impressed.
0: Yeah, for one of them, went to a liberal university to get his doctorate (laughs) and he discovered that people there were nice and somehow he had been raised to believe that only Adventists were nice, I guess. And it it (laughs) threw him a curve. I know it sounds, it sounds really bizarre, but, but that is one of the things that, that shifted him. Another thing was that some larger view people uh, let him down. And uh, that disillusioned him with them. And uh, this, this is a person, though, that really did have a very hefty being right. He was always right. No matter where he went, he went all over the place. No matter where he went, he was always right. And he lorded it over other people around him. His family could testify to that the best. Yes. Um,
6: I guess I have a question is, what does it mean in Hebrews to have it and to leave it and abandon God? Because I come back to 1 John 4. And there, we can define it in a lot of different ways. And so I think, um, is it that, they are abandoning a false picture of God, and they haven't left the spirit of God. It's a,
0: once, once they have seen the light, okay, they turn away.
6: So I'm going I'm to say that I think there are a lot of people who, because I can think of a few, who have left Christianity, even for atheism, because every God they have been presented and, and could get their heads around has been an ogre.
0: Yeah, but right. I I don't think that's talking about
6: them. Okay. In the, in these so verses. this is, I, I just want to dr- draw that out and say it isn't if, if we have had um in essence I think that that if we have a glimpse of a growing relationship with God or compassion love depending on the worldview we come from if we're moving towards the right thing and a good thing the declarations we make externally might not be the reality of the internal journey. I I just wanted to draw that out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And no, this is somebody, let's, let's read verse four. It's impossible to restore people to changed hearts and lives who turn away. Once they have seen the light, tasted the heavenly gift, become partners with the Holy spirit. And I think that last one is very key. A um, person has really been in partnership with the Holy Spirit. They know the light. They see it. They, it's actually in their lives. They are representing it correctly. And then they turn away. And I, I see that as an act of the brain that actually severs. It's, it's not something God does. It's not something the Holy Spirit does. It's something that actually happens in the mind.
1: Lucifer looks like a prime example. I'm sorry? Lucifer, Lucifer looks like arc- a prime yes. example.
7: Yes. You know, it seemed to me that Maxwell had said that it referred to a while, while they keep executing the son of God. Uh, and then I looked at this version, complete Jewish Bible, and it said um, it's impossible to renew them so that they turn from their sin as long as for themselves they keep executing the son of god and i think of of david you know i mean he he was really close to god and then he's pushed him away for a long time trying to avoid his sin you you could
0: use david as an example of someone who turned away from the truth but but nathan was able to bring him to repentance so that that part of his brain it wasn't like lucifer uh where the part of the brain actually changed to the point where you couldn't get the pathways back. I see. I uh, so there's um I think only God knows that condition. We don't have to worry about knowing that condition and other people. We can hope for the best that they'll come back. But I in the in the two individuals I know um they have not come back yet. One started back one started back, and I was hopeful that he would come. And the next thing I knew, he was telling, saying that we can all become God.
5: Mm-hmm. Good luck with that.
0: <laughs>
5: I'm sorry? I said, good luck with that.
7: <laughs> Mormons believe that, don't they?
0: And, and they, they wanted my opinion. There, there was a liaison in between us. This, this individual who has left is, is a former good friend of mine. I say for because we haven't had much contact. But, you know, when we, when we see each other, we're usually glad to see each other. But anyway, I was, I was asked to respond. And I responded with, you know, to me, the big difference between God and us is that he is a source of love. And we are mm-hmm. not. We are all creatures of response. We have to respond to love. Mm-hmm. In, order to be, in order to love, we have to be loved. God doesn't have to be loved in order to love. That's the Mm. big difference. Mm
6: -hmm. Yeah, and and,
0: uh, that was the end of the conversation. (laughs) I've never heard back.
5: Wow. You know, one thing that I've been impressed—I—I started listening to this fellow. uh, His name is Micah Bell, and and, in Adventism, we were never taught much about spirits, or never emphasized how much Jesus prayed against spirits and the disciples. It's there. There's plenty of biblical evidence for it, but one of the things that has become very important to me is the realization that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, Mm
8: -hmm. and if
5: you have the Holy Spirit, you can discern truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, you have to stay, this is where you can't get pride of life and go, I'm somebody intelligent, Uh, God is our source of intelligence, and it's also God and the Holy Spirit is our spirit of truth. And I don't know, it's just become a huge thing with me that I realize, you know, because you wonder how you've managed to get through all of the stuff that we see and hear in the everyday media. and, And it's like my BS meter, you know, I can, it's like, I know it's, I've been not listening to the mainstream media for years now. And um, and I now attribute that to the Holy Spirit. I used to wonder why and how do people get through this period of time? Even the most elect are deceived. And I think that's what we're talking about here is people who think they're very elect. And yet they, through pride, I think that was a very important designation. It's, it's like at some point people become very prideful. And um, for whatever reason, you can be, prideful about everything in your life
2: but doesn't jesus say that all sins can be given except the sin against the holy spirit which would be that Children avenue for forgiven in other except- words yeah
0: and i think that's here in hebrews they're partners with the holy spirit it means they're they're joined mm-hmm. to the holy spirit in a very cemented very very strong way and they leave that partnership mm-hmm. go out on their own
6: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's you know, and that's the 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 thought i have is you know there's a the for me the the language would be uh, the natural flow of the universe of god right so god is the source of love of life um of the fruit yes. of the spirit all that is is sourced it mm-hmm. flows from god so if I imagine that the natural order is that we are drawn to that as creatures of response. We are drawn to that. It actually takes a force, a a force of will Mm -hmm. to resist it Mm -hmm. and reject it. So, so I think that there's this ebb and flow as we're being drawn. So David exam, uh, as evidence of this ebb and flow, I mean, continually like, Oh no, I'm not, I want what I want. I, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. So I'm gonna resist this for the moment. But then somebody can intervene. It could be a direct intervention, it could be a human intervention to point out um, through story, illustration, whatever. So I think we all go through that. And what I see Hebrews is saying Mm -hmm. somebody who's been so connected to Mm -hmm. the willingness to grow and the and the closest, the closeness. Of it, that there hasn't been that re- resistance and rejection, and now they have said no, and it, maybe it's over because it's not just instant because God doesn't let like, go instantly, yeah. but it becomes this persistent, angry. Uh, uh, it, it becomes the opposite of the fruit of the spirit. Love is absent, peace is absent, yeah. and and it's you know we all go through this ebb and flow as we're learning to allow the draw, but. Mm-hmm. But I can't help but think that when we are reading Hebrews four, I'm sorry, Hebrews six, verse four, that we're we're saying the severed person is incapable of allowing the Spirit to produce fruit. I don't know if that makes sense. And yeah,
0: I, well, the, when when you severed when you sever a limb from a tree, it's not going to get fruit. Mm-hmm. I want to share a little secret with you. <laughs> I don't say this in most places, but when I was teaching in Hong Kong Adventist College, which was many, many years ago, one of the persons I mentioned is not with us anymore exactly, came to visit the campus. And after he left, I found myself and I was teaching about God every day. I was studying the Bible. I was praying. But one day I realized, I don't know why I need God. And it was bold and blunt and stark and, and very real. And I, I was kind of, I kind of drew back in fear. And I went, oh no. And so I knelt down and I said to God, okay. Whatever it takes, now get this thing out of me. And he said, can you handle what it will take? Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, no, here we go. This is going to be really painful. And I gritted my teeth and I said, whatever it takes. And I I remember peeling through the layers of my soul. And what I came to was pride, Mm -hmm. simply pride it was painful by the way it was very painful but it taught me humility Mm. and what I came to conclude is that there is something about the truth about God that because of our human weakness and our human natures sets us up more fully to full and really fall hard than any other view, any other picture of God. Every other picture of God, we're on our way, we're deceived and we're going somewhere. Hopefully the spirit is able to lead us gently towards the truth. And, and so there's a, there's a little more humility, but once we have the truth, we are more susceptible to pride.
5: Wow. Mm, yeah. You know, and that's mm-hmm. that's very important because at this point, because it was you that said truth is exponential. And as we learn how much we need God, we also realize how much exponentially we need God. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a vortex. I mean, going up, not down. But.
0: Okay, but the truth is supposed to make us humble.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: But something
0: mm-hmm. happens, something happens that go- messes up that that whole mechanism. And um, I have to still be guarded.
1: I wonder if Satan, again, you mentioned this earlier, Gene, if I heard you right, some friends did self-deification or whatever.
0: Well, one of them has had. I wonder,
1: I wonder if Satan the, shows us the two kinds of people there are in that we either want to be God or worship
0: him. And see, if we worship him, we recognize our creature status.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: We are not God. Exactly. Floyd, you were wanting to say something.
4: I I see this as primarily an issue of identity and where we derive our identity. Because I've concluded that worship, I mean, I've pondered for years, what in the world is worship? And what makes sense to me is that worship is whoever or whatever source we look to, to provide for our needs that we can't, but also to define who we are. That's, what we're, that's why we see worship. Every, we're going to worship. It, the question always is, where do we get our identity? And so if you see people who rave about their sports team, <laughs> they're getting their identity from how their mm-hmm. sports team is doing or mm-hmm. the movie stars or whatever source we identify with, to feel good about ourselves and to project to other people that we're worshiping them. And, and so what God is doing for anybody who's willing is to challenge every false dependency we have for our identity, our worth, our value on anything but him. Mm-hmm. So to actually worship God means I renounce every other source of identity other than what God says about me.
0: And, and to me, that identity is so embedded in love. I sometimes ask my students, so um, you have your heroes, how many of your heroes love you? <laughs> and they all kind of laugh, <laughs> like what? <laughs> but it's true, the heroes that we have often don't know our names. Okay. They certainly don't know how many hairs we have on our head. We, they, they don't love us. They could care less about us. They only love us for what they can get out of us. So they're all false gods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The true God loves us. And our identity is based on him and in, in the context of that love that draws us constantly.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: relationship Mm. and
3: specifically that kind of love that doesn't come from a transaction exactly Mm. god doesn't need anything from us in order to love us no that is is just god's nature
0: in fact we can't give him anything (laughs) right
3: right Uh, that makes that made me think of um lewis's four loves and like when he's when he's describing agape um he talks about like that's that's a pretty scary notion. When you when you really come down to grapple with, you cannot offer God anything. You cannot earn, no, that love. And just how, and I think that's kind of where that concept of pride comes in, is yeah. this idea of like I am something that is, uh, you know, I I have done something, I have earned something that is worth your love. I can I can. I deserve it, maybe is a okay. good
0: word for it. You've, most of you, I think, have heard me talk about the uh, three models that God created and the three models that human beings invented. What you've just said, Alex, is exactly along that line. Huh. And I call it talk about it in terms of human value. Um, I just presented it this week to my ethics. Christian ethics and society class, which couldn't be a more volatile class to be talking about these issues at this time in their history. Mm -hmm. In fact, I surveyed them for what their party was, for what, um, all kinds of things. I surveyed them so that I would know what I'm meeting. And the majority were Democrats and, and fairly to the left. And then there's this minority that are Republicans and strongly to the right. So we're going to have some mm-hmm. interesting s- situations and I'm not going to talk about politics. I've, I, I mean, except when we have a day designated to talk about the Christian and, the, and politics, but um, <clears throat> I'm not going to talk about current events if I can possibly avoid it. I'd rather talk about principle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not that, not that I, not that current events have given me some classic illustrations of some of the mm-hmm. things I'm about, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I'll leave it to them to put the, connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, in, in those uh, those three models that the three models of, that humans invented is all about earning things and, and the value is I have earned my I've earned everything I've earned my my, my keep, my clothing I, I work my way I you know our whole normal world is transactional all the way through we live and, mm-hmm. and breathe it.
1: Not not anything to do with you're valuable because you exist.
0: Yes, we are valuable because God created us in his image. That's mm-hmm. how we are valuable. And if I am valuable because of that, so are you valuable because mm-hmm. of that. And everybody else is valuable because of that. And there's, there's nobody above mm-hmm. that except God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, a, a student raised the question after I got done about, you know, how can we bring society back to this? It's true; it's the ideal, but but you know, we're 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 in this thing, and and we can't get out of it that easily. And I said, yeah. And he, he taught. He brought up uh, judicial justice as an mm-hmm. example,
3: mm-hmm. and
0: what to do with criminals. And I brought mm-hmm. up Sweden, and what they do, and I brought up some other things. He didn't think Sweden would work. Brought up restorative justice. He didn't think that would work. And I finally said, well, you -hmm. know, where I would start as a person, as a human being, trying to effect change is with our value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To try to teach people how they are valuable to God without having earned anything. Mm -hmm. They are valuable. Because like you said, they exist. Mm-hmm. I remember I was teaching this in my Sabbath school class from years ago. And somebody, a friend who's larger view, who, who's listened to Graham Maxwell for years. Who also has a deformity that is very obvious. And yet he's a just the neatest guy I think I've ever met. Not that. Other people aren't going to need to, but he, just, he exudes joy. He exudes uh, friendliness and kindness. And Anyway, he came up to me afterwards. He said, I, I never realized before that I was valuable. Mm. Wow. And I thought, wow.
7: Of what I read in Mountain of Blessing, which blew me away, it said, uh, even the most degraded, we, we should treat with love and tenderness. Because um, they have been loved the lost even the lost in the end will realize they have been loved with an unspeakable tenderness and will be held account to account as to how we treated even the most degraded you know if we did not treat them with respect and tenderness
0: well, you think about Jesus and how he treated Judas yeah he washed his feet first and mm-hmm. he poured into that foot washing all of the love that he could, and I only sense for sure the presence of Jesus once it was that uh, when God uh, asked me to be a theologian and set me apart, and I just had, the sense the Holy Spirit on my right, and I sensed Jesus' presence on my left, and it was like Jesus was the distilling of the love of God into its most It 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 was a love that had suffered, so it was a distilling of this love that has suffered, that is just sweet and holy and awesome. You can imagine Jesus washing Judas' feet, and exuding that love, that tenderness, the way he touched him. And Judas comes face to face with a decision: Is he going to go forward? Or is he going to surrender? Mm-hmm. But that's how God, Jesus treated Judas. So then fast forward. Jesus is dying on the cross. And at the foot of the cross are a lot of angels and a lot of demons.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And there for the first time in close range, the father at the foot of the cross meets face to face with the arch enemy of evil i shouldn't say of evil the arch enemy of of good the the architect of evil Mm
3: -hmm.
0: how did god the father look at him Mm -hmm. jesus looked at judas with with pity when judas comes in and throws his his money down on the on the temple floor and, and says, I've sinned okay, okay Ifas, and I've I've mistreated innocent blood. Jesus looked at him with pity. How did the father look at Satan? That same love, the same tenderness, the same pity. And that's when Satan fell. He fell because he realized he could not keep us out of heaven. He could not persuade God not to let us in.
6: Well, I was just thinking that the um, the contrast of Judas and Peter. The same love, the same countenance, mm-hmm. the same everything, and what you find is the 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 same perhaps regret in what they've done and said, and yet. The two different places, because of their conceptions about God, led them to two very different responses. And um, there was something else in there I was going to, it's I think gone, I may come back. But I I just thought I'd, uh, oh, yes, when we were talking about we earn everything, our experiences is transactional. I still struggle both myself. And when I hear it from others, the idea that, um, yeah, you can't earn your way to heaven. No question about that. Good thing. Jesus did it for you. You can't Mm -hmm. pay your penalty. Good thing. Jesus paid it for you. It's still Mm -hmm. transactional. So Mm -hmm. and uh, it's so easy. Even for me, Knowing it's not transactional, to use transactional language. How do we? And
0: sometimes you have to in order to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. There is a sense in which Jesus did it for us, but it's not transactional what he did for us.
7: (laughs) Revelatory instead, maybe? Or
0: would you say revelatory? When we talk, use the metaphor, pay the price. Mm -hmm. That's a transaction. Mm-hmm. but what if what if you break it down into non-transactional language Jesus did for us what we could never have done for ourselves right. that is to re- to redeem the picture of god to reveal mm-hmm. the father to uh, reveal his love to uh all of those things reveal overcome
1: them. selfishness and fear
0: yes you know oh, i've wrestled
4: um, I've wrestled with that concept of paying the price
3: Mm
4: -hmm. years and years and I actually one day went up to my Sabbath school teacher who was a theologian at the seminary and I asked him point blank okay if Jesus paid the debt who got paid Mm
7: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
4: and his answer convinced me that even the theologians don't know (laughs) So I continued to ponder it for years and ask God to explain it to me. And presently, my conclusion is that because of our mindset in this commercial transactional mentality, that Jesus did pay the price that we demanded, and he paid it to us.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: And the purpose of paying it was to earn our trust enough to start listening.
0: That's And see, there you've broken through the shell of the transactional model into uh, the real thing. Mm-hmm. Is, because all of these these uh, transactional metaphors and, and wording, uh, all of it is all of it is speaking to us in a very limited, it's a shell, it's a shell, and it's a fake shell. It's not real. Our commercial life is not real. We're playing a game every time we make a transaction that isn't real. No, no. Um, and I, I've, I've recently discovered something about ancient Mesopotamia. The earliest kind of relationships with the gods were based on meal they would get together and have a feast and they would they would have a feast with the gods now i don't i don't value their gods <laughs> their gods were false and they were headed for a very bad danger but it was when urbanization began and the commercialism took over and then some people rose to power and you have kingship and and Uh, all of this started developing religion completely changed and instead of having a communion with gods the way you stood before the the god is the way you stood before a king and everything was under power and transaction transaction and i i think of that trajectory of mesopotamian religion and and since the Mesopotamians were the earliest civilization, this is where we got off.
9: You know, I, I kind of think of it as um, from the relationship set of language that we use about a late relationship, let's say a loving, caring relationship that you have with somebody, you don't use transactional language within that relationship. It's an no, abuse to the relationship to say, I transacted something in your behalf. I saved your life there by paying the price for, you just don't talk like that in a relationship that's a loving relationship.
0: I've sometimes asked my students, uh, so have you made a contract with your roommate yet? <laughs> and they look at me. Like, what? And finally, one student said, I don't need a contract with my roommate. I trust my roommate. <laughs> and that's the whole point mm-hmm. that transactional language is works for us because we don't trust anyone.
4: And that's the difference between a contract and a covenant, isn't it?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. That's according to Jonathan uh, Rabbi Jonathan. No, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Gotta get all his titles lined up. Uh, he's the chief uh, rabbi of, of Great Britain. He's a conservative Jew, but he says some of the greatest things, and one of them is that the covenant is not a contract. It's a bond of trust. Mm. And, and if you ever want to look him up on YouTube, you can listen to some of some of the greatest comments
7: mm-hmm.
0: on this kind of thing.
7: His last name is
0: S-A-C-K-S. S-A-C-K-S. Rabbi Don- Lord Sachs. Rabbi jo- Lord Jonathan Sachs. Yeah. If you just looked up uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, you'd find him.
3: Okay. Um, what Floyd was talking about it like uh, paid whom, you know, like who, who did Jesus pay the price for uh, or pay the price to, that just that reminds me, I, I let out in a Sabbath school with some of my peers where we were looking at of different models of atonement also mm-hmm. kind of like in our hymns and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the images mm-hmm. and stories that we grow up on. And one of the things we noticed is that a lot of them get blended together. Oh my. He
0: passed away. He passed away last November. That's mm. sad, but he's left a tremendous legacy, I have to say. That's the rabbi that passed away. Yeah, he passed away in December, in November. Mm-hmm.
7: So the, the covenant being uh, a bond of trust, it's just a celebration of the trust. Um,
0: a covenant is you know, well. well I covenant. The if you covenant there's the covenant has migrated towards transactionalism yeah that's what we have to, to we have to take that in mind. so we have to go back to the first covenant with noah no there was no transaction god gave a promise and that promise promise was the covenant Now you could say well there's some stipulations over here with diet and things like that but that's not attached to the covenant that's separate now the old
7: covenant was that transactional because you know do mm-hmm. this Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. it's very transactional but the original covenant with Abraham uh, Abraham trusted God and God counted that as his righteousness there's a bit of transactional language there he counted it as his righteousness but what it means is there is no transaction other than this I trust you it's not transactional
7: yeah. Now, can that word counted mean considered? Because to me, um, I, I looked it up, I think, in, in Strong's, and it, it seemed to indicate that it could also be you know, reckoned or considered.
0: In other words... He can, I consider that righteousness, yeah. It, and that's how I would translate me.
7: it. So he's right in the head, because he trusts me. He's right. You know, he's righteous. Exactly. To-
0: exactly. And, and God gained his trust. You could say God earned his trust. And that's transactional language. Um, but it doesn't work the same way as transaction. It's, it's the real thing. And it because God God's trust created, I like the word created or engendered trust. God's trustworthiness engendered trust. His love mm-hmm. created a response of love. Uh, it's a dynamic creation Centered kind of re, uh, relationship. It is not transactional. Transactional is arbitrary and um uh, contrived and artificial. Mm-hmm.
4: My understanding of the the principal difference is that a transaction, which is a counterfeit of a covenant, mm-hmm. is well, a covenant is the principle of heaven, of creation, where Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. Mm-hmm. So it's unilateral, without an mm-hmm. expectation of return. Mm-hmm. Commercial, the commercial spirit, which I believe was invented by Lucifer, is you don't freely give. You give expecting a return.
7: Yeah. All so for a
4: transaction is, is bilateral. A covenant is unilateral.
7: Depending on the type of covenant, I guess. Um, agreement. When I look up covenant.
0: Yeah, but you have to be careful about dictionaries.
7: But <laughs> well, one says it comes from to come together. Yes. Um, to come um, actually, together. the word
0: covenant in Hebrew is bereft. And it's related to an Akkadian word, "berite" that means, I can't remember the exact nuance, but it means exactly what I think what Sue said. Between, the word berit means between. And you think about what between means. There's a relationship there. It's between us. What is between them? Well, we say trust. Um, and it's used for between two localities and so on. Inside, within. So it's used in sentences like, we will establish friendly relations between him and me. Of course, that's we will establish, right? Babylonians never understood anything but transactional stuff. Well, I suppose a
7: uh, self anywhere would do that. You know what I mean? Um,
0: but you so think between within that's really all it means. Breathe is, is a is a relationship with a person.
9: Well, think of it just in the like a marriage relationship terms. You could say, <clears throat> so we agree that we want to be married, we drop a contract, it's called a license, we both sign it the state that we live in, signs off on it, it's legal, it, by the law, you belong to me and I belong to you. Now try and press that for 40 years with your spouse. (laughs) Keep pulling that paper out and say, it says here, the state of Pennsylvania says so, it's the law, that's not gonna wear very well after 40 years.
2: Interesting in connection that um, I, I was thinking earlier when we were talking about uh, our creaturely status that we are created and that our value is simply in our being and uh, in the world of therapy we looked a lot at attachment which was um, you know what you hope for is that there's a positive attachment between an infant and their mother and father And there's that sense of you have value and worth simply because you are. And we will take care of your needs. We'll come through for you, not because we're getting anything out of this, but because you have value and worth. And when there's distortions of that attachment early on, it has profound impact on identity. And people often have a mixture of I'm not okay you're not okay, or some combination of those to put it kind of simplistically. And I thought how God's healing is to draw us back into worshiping on Sabbath, which is a celebration of His saying, I love you, you have value and worth simply because you exist. And if we can grasp that, then we can extend that to others, you know, because would most of the problems of the world be solved if I? Accepted that for myself and I extended that to others. What a different world we would live in if I go, You have value and worth. Even if you have different political views or ways of being or living, you still have value and worth. And I just think it's interesting that part of God's healing and maybe the significance of getting that through Sabbath observance is part of what God is trying to bring us back to that value and worth that He sees in us and wants us to extend to others anyway
0: yes the three great models that god created are natural law or creation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. family yes and sabbath Mm -hmm. and sabbath is the most anti-transactional of all you're talking about unilateral you rest reminds me of a fateful Mm -hmm. day i was on my way to my office and i had my hand uh, my arm full of stuff, two laptops, <laughs> actually a mini computer and a laptop and several books. And I was carrying them to my office. And all of a sudden I stepped on a, li- a- liquid amber prickly ball and just had enough ability to support my weight to throw me. And I fell right on my head on the sidewalk. Samantha, oof. And I fell so hard. That I could feel it penetrate my brain.
7: Oh,
0: yeah. And so I ended up in ER, actually in job care. <laughs> it was related to work. Uh I ended up in job care. And um they diagnosed me with a concussion. Mm-hmm. And and they sent me home. I, I'm one of those freaks that loves work. And when I take a vacation, I I migrate back to work. I can't seem to stay away from work. But anyway, (laughs) uh, the doctor picked up on that. And I remember him saying, he says, you need to stop everything and rest. And I looked at him in horror. (laughs) How can you do this to me? (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: I thought you were my friend.
0: (laughs) That's, well that's something so i think of that and and what happened is i got in my recliner after i got home actually it was the next day i had to break all the rules in order to feed my cat <laughs> i crawled around my foot was my my ankle was badly turned and i had to crawl on my knees which i wasn't supposed to be doing <laughs> concussion. But anyway, um, I finally ended up in my recliner. I remember, I think it was the next day and, and began to actually relish. So you you have to hit me over the head for this, but I, I actually began to relish rest. Rest means you stop working. Rest means you stop earning. Rest means you stop and you stop doing and become. That's when you find your being. It's when you have to stop working. I've I found this out a little bit because I had to retire early last year, and um, I still am working. I'm I'm teaching two classes a quarter on a contract basis. But life is easier. And I'm, I'm beginning to find joy again. I don't feel so oppressed by the time clock. Not that I was checking in at all. I was salaried, but but still, it it feels so good to rest, and it has given me a new sense of being, of who I am.
2: I'm wondering if that's part of what Hebrews 4, 9 meant, whether it remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God and that recognition that God is asking me to rest, not because of anything I can pull off or do for him, and that that will be the difference between those who accept entering that rest and what that means versus um, signing up for some other kind of transactional relationship. You know, and that ultimately he's saying that that sense of attachment is the only thing that's ultimately going to bring you peace and rest, anyway? Yeah, that's a good thought,
6: Bill. Yeah, um, a few things that um, uh, have come in this conversation to me is that um, there, and I learned this from a sage uh, woman, that there, there's um, with the issue of of relationship trust that the breakdown of relationship and trust in order to to see if I represent this well in order to function in society we needed rules and laws but that even those can become abusive and so if if God is not an abuser um, and we look and say even when it comes to marriage if if we have um, legalities around marriage why do we have those legalities around marriage if our identity if our rest is in that marriage then then if it is emanating from that which is true then legalities are beside the point I was going to say uh, when we were talking about marriage that in Cameroon there's three levels of marriage if I uh, remember this correctly one is um, You have a tribal marriage, Um, you have church marriage, and you have civil marriage. And the only one that provides legal protections is civil marriage. And um, with, so, so, um, because in the natural society, women don't have the rights, but in civil society of Cameroon, women have rights. So our church went through a whole process of um, getting people who are either tribally or just church marriage. Well, it's rare that you would not have, the first level is tribal marriage, then you might have a church marriage. But if you had one or those both, we wanted uh, the effort in the local church there, in in the Cameroonian church, was to get people civilly married so that there would be rights of succession, rights of child uh, rearing for the woman. If the husband died and there was a great relationship, who needed those love? But if the husband died and the woman was now subject to the to the whims of those outside that covenant and that her protection was actually given by the state, not even by the church. <laughs> so, So why do we have the... The transactional aspects is because we can't or we don't trust each other. Um, and I, and I think that, that as we are drawn in, and I love the, the bringing together in this conversation of Sabbath rest, but how much of that is again given transactional language within our denomination, let alone as we describe it to others outside of our denomination where is that beauty of identity of rest of being to give up the striving, the earning and all of that. So, and again, I look at that in marriage and say, Oh, if my, if I or Jixie end up always feeling like we have to strive and satisfy and appease the other, where's the rest? I mean, I see these things coming together and anyway, I, I've, I've appreciated this conversation because it has stimulated a little gray matter in these areas.
7: Yeah. Well, is rest like trust? I mean, mm-hmm. oh, a couple of thoughts flashed my mind when we talked about marriage, because I knew this one lady. She was the granddaughter of somebody that was high up in the conference, and she had arthritis. It was just terrible. And this gentleman who used to come to visit her family got to know her, and he loved her. And she said, he said, marry me. And she said, no, no, I'm a cripple. And he goes, no, marry me. And she kept saying, no, no, no. And he said, I want to take care of you. And then she felt safe. She felt like, you know, I don't have to perform for this person and meet certain expectations of being a good cook or being, you know, Mm -hmm. a butterfly on the wing or whatever. You know, I just... He just loves me. He just wants to take care of me. And I thought that was so beautiful.
0: And and what love does is not consign us to laziness. What love does is give us our true sense of worth and our true ability to function. Mm -hmm. So that work is not stressful. So that earning is not our goal. Uh, and and we function. In the case of of the woman you were talking about, who's really very handicapped, she has other ways of acting to mm-hmm. to make that marriage just glow with love. Love love is a, a verb. It's it's active. Mm-hmm. It's dynamic. It's transforming. It's changing. And I think that what a lot of people. I mean, there are some people in our world who would say that we are all communists in here <laughs> because of the way we're talking, but that's, that's not at all. Communism isn't built on love. Socialism isn't built on love. There may be some people who, who go a socialist route because they love people and they want to help the poor and so on, but, but it's not built intrinsically on love uh, the only thing in our society that's built on love is the family and that has been terribly distorted yeah
1: i wonder if the lies that are being believed that cause us to doubt god's love because it sounds too good to be real
9: yeah. and
1: then philip yancey says there's nothing you can do to make god love you more there's nothing you can do to make him love you less do we really believe that? How many of us have experienced it at some time in our lives with another human if not? Cuz if we don't experience it with humans we probably think it's too good to exist.
0: Yeah. Yeah, um most of our lives about God, most of our transactional modeling is is built upon a bad family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
7: I have to say, and, I, you know, I had a family that was pretty tough, lovish, and, you know, mm-hmm. um, not a lot of warmth and and it's a Calvinistic family kind of, you know, <laughs> reflected the theology sometimes, I think. But um, then I had a niece that was born and I, I thought, oh, I guess I better go see my niece, you know, this niece that was born. Just another thing I have to do. And I just, I just so enjoyed this little kid. (laughs) I never knew, you know, that kids could be so much fun. And and just, and, and so I just, you know, for seven years, she was my sidekick every weekend. And she taught me more about the love of God, I think, than anything, because I just, I loved her for her, you know, just, I just, um, and and then I thought, you know, her name is Jennifer. And she, and then it, it hit me. I'm God's Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that he loves me as much as i love jennifer you know and then just like a, a how can that be
0: but it's just we're told it's just a tiny little real
3: mm-hmm.
0: you you became god to jennifer too in a sense because yeah. the first gods we have are our parents mm-hmm. and you you in a way were parenting her and that's that's the the wonderful thing about families, but that's also the tragic thing when when parents become abusive. Mm-hmm. And that's their God as abusive, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and it's so hard. It is so hard for children who have been abused to embrace a loving God. They just it is mm-hmm. had to be true. It, they just can't get it.
2: As as I did a lot of trauma therapy addressing people's that distortion usually from their family of origin. And it was amazing to see their acceptance of, um, you know, their longing for that view of God, that someone who could love them just for them, because that longing was there, even though their experience countered that truth and they had to work extra hard to try to accept, try to accept God from that perspective because their experience was so different. So, you know, part of what I think God calls us to is to love people in that way, because experiencing that love, no matter what is belonging of our hearts. Can you talk about God to
7: your clients? Do they let you do that?
2: I got to work in a Christian um, counseling program. So I worked- So as non-denominational, oh. so a lot of Christians came there and so, you know, some clients we we would always talk about that what they wanted, what was their choices, and some definitely said yes to that. Some said no to that. So we worked within the, their their choices with that. So, but for most of my clients, yes, I could, which was an awesome experience.
7: Yeah, because I thought of going into that, but I thought you can't talk about God with them, you know. And what? I, how can you? How can you bring healing?
0: Without talking about the love of God, their value, etc. That's a great. That's a great place to be. I would say. What
1: good news is there if there isn't something I, you can talk about God?
0: I would be tied in knots if I couldn't talk freely about God in my classroom. Mm-hmm.
7: But you know, I, I thought. Of, Maybe teaching in a uh, Adventist school, and I, uh, they would kick me out. You know, I remember you talking, Jean, about I think it was Hong Kong or Korea. I'm not sure how they gave you a hard time when you started talking to the kids. That's
0: that's part of my baccalaureate address. I think maybe that's where you got it. Um, I told that story, and then <sighs> yeah, um, they were glad I was leaving <laughs>
2: <laughs> because of your view.
0: Of- I should not say they, it was really the president only, nobody else was sad. I, I mean, everybody else was fine about uh, my being there, but um, the president was so worried about his reputation and the college's reputation that he was glad I was leaving.
7: But you know, you've know, you heard of, t- look what they did to Graham Maxwell and Mama Linda. You know
0: what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, I know what he went through. Yeah. <laughs> So sad. <laughs> it is sad.
7: The Adventist Church. You can't talk. Crazy. I,
0: you know, I, I, uh, I'm really troubled about the church and and how it systematically seems to keep us out. We can't but probably-
1: that's a denomination. I want to argue that, Gene, you're the church.
7: No, Sue, I'm not the church.
0: the church. I'm not the church. Uh, we not. we are God's people. Uh, I like that. We are not the only ones who are God's people. That's what Hope I was trying you God, to say. Have people everywhere.
1: Exactly. Not a, not a denomination, not but, a structure.
0: It breaks my heart that, I mean, because so many more people could have this. Yeah. The church didn't fight it so tenaciously. But mm-hmm. isn't
4: it because a denomination, by law, literally, is a corporation? And the very design and system of a corporation requires hierarchy. It's based on economics. And and everything about it, its very existence is defined by the counterfeit foundations of civilization. So it's incompatible with a body mechanism.
0: So let's go back to movement, shall we?
1: Yes it's a- exactly what you said Floyd by its very nature it's opposite of christianity because it's self serving
0: it shouldn't be but it seems it to be, be but it is. and and um, how do you you know applying our text <laughs> speaking of which yeah. how do you turn a domination around that's gone all that way out
7: well remember that what Elma says is that Uh, She said, it looks like the church will fail, but he's still in charge of steering the ship and he will steer it. And um, I I just wonder if COVID isn't part of that because people, um, they're trying to go back to church, you know, and listen to the authorities, dispense knowledge, et cetera. But if they have time at home to think maybe about the scriptures without just Being spoon fed all the time, maybe, you know, make people think a little bit. I don't know.
6: So, there, um, we can say that uh, a lot about hierarchy and self management. And I think that there's a lot we can mine in that. When I'm tying this back with Hebrews 6 4 to 8. The the idea that we are once you've gone down the road of hierarchy you can't come back. I think that's a false assumption. I don't, There's a word I'm missing, but anyway. Premise. Um, uh, yeah, it's a fallacy of a the the premise that you you're now hierarchy and and whatnot. I think that's a false premise. So hierarchies can be viewed, and I went through this uh, struggle. Um, hierarchies can be viewed as the skeleton that holds up the body as opposed to the brain that gives function and direction so if we look at the hierarchy as as a you know an organizational structure that holds up the body and that leadership and um, brilliance and all of this other stuff happens at, at every human being within that structure so so no longer are we kingship oriented hierarchies but we are saying organizational structure functions to empower and enable. I mean, even empowering is a problem word because it assumes that the hierarchy has taken the power from. And maybe that's true in that sense, then the hierarchy needs to release its taking of that power and give it back to where it rightfully belongs. And that's to each member. And I I think, hierarchy then functions as an empowering lack of sucking of power and releasing it back to the people and saying, now, how do we support you in what we as a collective want to accomplish? So when I read Ellen White, who says, God won't let the church fail, or whatever that case might be, for me, that's the biggest level of church, not, this, not our denomination, if our denomination fails, God hasn't. That's on us, not on him. <laughs> so, yeah, well, right. I thought I would just toss that off.
0: Well, you know, um, having watched the Adventist Church, even as a child, I I would look at the review. I didn't read the heavy articles, but I would look at the review and see what was being conversed. And and of course, in those days, there were lots of letters to the editor and every issue was out there for discussion. And and it was very in, um I don't know. Very intelligent discussions were going on in the review in those days. <laughs> I missed those, but um, the general conference has toggled back and forth between dictatorship and and more of the kind of hierarchy you're talking about, where um, it isn't top-down control. It is uh, more supportive and and uh, helpful. Having looked at that and seeing where we are now, I agree with you, Bill, that what happens to the church is not as important as what happens to us. I say us, meaning the people. I, I, don't, want, I don't want to say this in an, a bad way, but I'm always struck with the Laodicean message. It starts out with you. You are poor, blind, miserable, naked. The you refers to the church as a person. It's a personal way of talking to the church. Mm -hmm. It ends, if anyone, not you, But if anyone, look, I'm standing outside the door. What's the door? It's the door of the church. I'm standing outside the church, and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into that one, and I will eat with them and they with me. To me, I find that liberating Mm -hmm. to think about church in a much bigger way that anybody can be part of the church. If they value Jesus and they open the door to him and they allow him to come in and eat with them and they with him, this is the last church. There is no other. Laodicea is the last church in the seven. There's no mention of another church. There's just mention of anyone. mm mm-hmm.
4: And that mm-hmm. ties directly back to what you said some time ago, that the earliest records of a relationship with the deity had to do with mm-hmm. eating, not, not totalitarianism. And yeah. so Jesus is asking us to go back to our roots mm-hmm. and to eat with him instead of, mm-hmm. instead of him lording it over us.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. A friend of mine said, "In the Middle East, you never—they never invite somebody to eat with them that they don't trust. Yeah, it's they an honor
5: they
1: to eat, eat with." Them.
5: Well, you know, in the twenty-third Psalm, they talk about David talks about you know, you pre- prepare a table for me, and then I eat in front of my enemies. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sort of brings it all into light, I think. So
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Jesus ain't with his enemy. <laughs> One book that I found fascinating was uh, a book entitled Pagan Christianity. You guys may be familiar oh, yeah. with it or not. And it mm-hmm. was a radical shaking up by Frank Viola and George Barna. Of course, does lots of research about Christian communities. And it was, whoa, look at... The structure of the church is not what God initially set up. So anyway, Pagan Christianity, excellent read, fascinating to look at, you know, often the church structure itself, all eyes forward, looking to one individual, raised platform, special chairs. You know, when it says uh, each one is we are the priesthood of all believers, And that we are challenged to say each one of us is gifted in some unique way that can be contributory. But how often our churches are set up is you get to hear one person, one person's thoughts, not a conversation where people said, you know, wow, God really put this on my heart or this verse really has come or here's a song or whatever. And uh, Frank has a very different way of doing church where it's more participatory And each member is challenged to use the gift that the Holy Spirit has gifted them with in in enriching the body. Fascinating, fascinating views. Not not a church structure I've ever participated in, but...
0: It's more of a church to go to them rather than bring them to us. Well,
6: and this is, Mm -hmm. what are we saying about our structure? When we talk about leveraging our authority to help the young adults feel included. Uh, Already, just in that language, we are assuming kingship orientation, Mm -hmm. power, and authority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I've challenged that with people I've heard it from, because I like them and I I appreciate them. But the worldview is so strong, the paradigm is so strong. So when I say, well, what is this what if you approach it from a different perspective where you are all equal? Now I'm not empowering you. uh, I'm not holding you back from that which you are called to do. And so the model, whether it's pastoral or conference or union or division or GC, a person in those position holds kingship orientation, then you don't have the freedom to, and in their eyes. And so if you claim that freedom, you, have, you may run afoul. So I think that, that when it, it's talking, if the model, the truth of, of what we're talking about, because right, we went through and struggled with, what is the truth, at least I did, uh, of Hebrews 4, You know God, and you have abandoned that. It isn't the struggle of being drawn into him. It has been, you have been this close, and you know the Spirit. You've experienced the Spirit, and now you're cutting him off. That's a very different type of abandonment from the struggle that we all face. I just wanted to bring that back because our organizations reflect our individual struggles and our corporate struggles. Uh-huh.
5: Uh-huh. Very good. I have a question, Jean, and this is kind of a joke. Do they still confine you to the Hill as a pastor?
0: I'm not, I'm not a pastor. Um, I've never been you a pastor.
5: Were, I'm a, a you were my pastor. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was that was back when my Sabbath school met in the church and I was yes. part of the church, but I abandoned the church <laughs> and it wasn't, God. it was, uh, for several reasons. One was I had ill health for several years and I asked someone to take my class for me temporarily. And then when it was time for me to take it back, he wouldn't give it back, mm-hmm. or at least he moped around and let me know he didn't want to give it back. And I wasn't going to force it, and the class had dwindled under him to just a handful of people. So well, you could have uh, just
5: run down the street.
0: I so I quit. <laughs> I quit, and I had two, I had a student come to me that summer and say, "Dr. Sheldon, would you please teach a class for students? I will attend if you will. I really want you to." And then after he came, another male student came to me and said would have you ever thought of teaching a sabbath school class for students (laughs) and uh, i i kept saying you know i'm i don't really have the health for this and and one of them said i am going to go and pray and you are going to teach (laughs) and so uh i finally decided god was trying to tell me something (laughs)
1: You tried Moses' excuse. It didn't
0: work. I taught four students. There were two couples. They both got married. Both couples got married. And uh, cool. that was my, my class for several years. And then uh, I ended up with a class of students who had been raised larger view, and, mm-hmm. but had been hearing other views and other voices and were confused. And they wanted to hear, you know, is what our parents taught us the truth. And I was able to lead them through that journey. And they were all really eager and happy to learn. Alex was in that class. Oh. Well, Guy that
5: was telling you you still had a brain. Um, you know what I'm talking about. It leaves yeah. and it becomes this distant fog. And Luella used to call me and say, what's for dinner? And i say, I can't think that far ahead. So. <laughs> but it came back.
0: Oh, yeah, it was because of, of Lyme disease. Because I got bit yeah. for the second time in ni- two thousand nine. Um, but anyway, um,
5: were you being treated at the time?
0: <laughs> yes, I was.
5: Yeah, I, I experienced. Exactly. I actually had a blood the second time.
0: <laughs> Three thousand milligrams <laughs> of antibiotics a day. Yeah. Wow. Labs to go with it, so that my kidney function didn't fail. <laughs> Anyway, um.
8: I, I wanted to introduce myself. I know some of you, but not all. This is Mark Mares, and uh, I've uh, been a Larger View for, for a long time, and uh, no Gene from My back Was a Pup. And, <laughs> yeah, so I uh, finally got to finally put together the Zoom, the Zoom link and the time at the same time thing so I've now got it in my schedule so. so
0: okay so uh next week will probably be well let me ask you Bill would you like to continue uh hosting this or would you prefer like going back to my Zoom I, I have gotten to
6: provided I'm here
0: okay if you're not here just let me know and we'll do it my, with mine
8: and um, on on, no, the, on on what I perceive to be the topic I was going to comment on what uh, bill said when i first came in and, and that was i've always had felt always struggled with the tension between uh hierarchy and and you know just relationship go with go with the flow and i realized while i was listening to bill that i think i have been making a common mistake and that is assuming that all hierarchy or that all structure is hierarchical it doesn't have to be the only reason that we think of of the skeleton i thought that was a good good example the skeleton isn't necessarily fundamentally hierarchical it's only our way of viewing it so um if we if we divorce the hierarchy from the structure it's like yeah you need structure it doesn't need to be hierarchical because i i in in the, the explorers Sabbath school class that that we're doing, we're going through um, the Book of John chapter by chapter. We're in it's sixteen today. So, but reading back through thirteen through seventeen, it's amazing to me how how God's message to us completely levels the playing field. It's 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 the very opposite of hierarchical.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. good point. Is the Trinity hierarchical? Did Jesus treat women or men hierarchical?
0: No, the Trinity is a family. It mm-hmm. operates in the family model.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So I like the
4: way that Bill sort of reformatted the concept of the ideal organizational structure. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like if we did it right, which is seldom ever seen, that that <laughs> structure, which is a pseudo hierarchy really, is, is the means of facilitating and communicating a large group of people or even a small group of people to bring out, to, to let them network with other people Places or other people or activities or together or to bind them into modules without without controlling what they do, without telling them what to do, but more of a, like the nervous system in your body, you know, the nervous system is not there to control everything, I mean, yes, it gives impulses, it tells your heart when to beat, does a lot of things, but it's in the background. And it communicates, you know, it transfers messages from everywhere in your body to the brain. And then it sends things back out, but it's not the dominating thing. It's, it's the background facilitating thing. Cause if you cut a nerve somewhere, you got serious problems. You know, you suddenly find out how valuable your nervous system is.
8: Well, there's a, there's a engineering or, or actually, I think it comes from chaos theory, but, um, uh, it's called emergent properties. And, and basically, it, it what it says is that the, the function of an anthill, which is the common example that we use, the function of an anthill is not found in any one ant, not even the queen. The, the function of an anthill is something that emerges from the relationships among, among some very simple properties. And I, I think that that's more the model of what we need to look at with what God's trying to do with us is that is that the the function of the church doesn't come from any one member I mean Paul Paul goes on and on about this about mm-hmm. all the members of the body it, it doesn't come from any one member it's it's the emergent properties of all those things working together that makes the true character of the body and the true character of the church I wish
7: because, it was that way in the
0: Adventist
8: church yeah it's,
0: well, when you get as big as we are, it's hard yeah. to be hierarchical, especially. And isn't
8: hierarchy
1: some of the ways Satan uses to distract people and keep their pride well fertilized?
5: Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah.
8: I think hierarchy is the is the essence of, of Satan's way of running things.
2: Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that part of when I read Revelation, there's that reference to antipas, and some um, some perspectives on that said it was a reference to hierarchy and putting one in a higher plane than another. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Gene, um, but you know when it talks about antipas that, and no. that's in anyway. the seven
0: churches, isn't it?
2: it's in uh, seven churches yeah. right and i read some comment about that which was uh, you know a call for you know non prideful um, you know uh, that we're all on that equal plane you know rich poor slave free male female that there was that god was calling all into a different kind of relationship which was non transactional non hierarchical And that part of the church is to relate so differently than the world relates. Anyway, um, I'd have to go review that. But I thought there was some reference to, you know, and the uh, church structure so different than most hierarchical organizations, which are there to promote the existence and continuance of the organization, no matter how it impacts members.
0: Yeah, I am there to make a a comment to a union officer. We was complaining that the younger generation uh, really like house churches. Oh. I said, well, you know, I think that we're going to need to go that way. Yeah.
1: <laughs> George, George uh-huh. Barnes says the same thing. The emerging mm-hmm. church is going to be house churches. The true church. Who well. said
7: that?
6: George Barnes. George, uh, what we're doing is a house church, right? I mean,
1: yes, Martin, he's part of the Christian Research Group, a uh, uh, co-author with uh, Frank Viola yeah. on on the book referred to earlier, mm-hmm. Pagan Christianity. Oh, and
8: then, I've, yeah, and, I've, I've been absolutely convinced of that from way back when I first ran onto the the larger view and just doing small group with uh, with uh, a few people in in Loma Linda. It's like this this church getting together with a huge you know with hundreds of people that's not really church for me anymore Mm -hmm. so it's, it's not just the younger generation
0: yeah no i think i think we're coming to a very cataclysmic experience with the church and here's here's why more than half your pastors are really retirement age wow they can't hang on forever And all of a sudden there's going to just be not enough pastors Mm -hmm. and there aren't enough coming through the pipeline. I speak as someone who for 25 years taught in a theology department and taught Mm -hmm. pastors to be, there's not enough coming through. Mm -hmm. Pastors as a career don't cut it with the younger generation. They just would not Mm -hmm. become pastors. God has to call people deliberately, emphatically. I ha- we had a, a female theology major some years ago who um, she wanted to be a lawyer. Her parents wanted her to be a lawyer. They said, don't be a pastor. You know, pastors don't, they, they don't have a good reputation. <laughs> and and uh, this is Southern California speaking. <laughs> and um, so she she toyed with being a lawyer, but God kept bringing her back to being a pastor and being, being a pastor. And Ooh. she did. And even after she became a pastor, she was visiting PUC on a Friday night vespers, and I was there. She spoke actually for it, and she came and sat with me. And I said, we were talking about it, and she said, I, I don't know what to think. I said, well, I think you want to know what God wants you to think. So I predict... The God's going to call a lot of women in the future. But will will they let them be pastors? You know. Well, if they don't have any pastors,
7: but <laughs> 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 the Bible is right here.
0: I mean, maybe That's women are raising up churches. Who knows? Yeah. Jean, Gene is
8: gonna... yours. Gene, is your sense that the those who are coming through the pipeline who are younger is Is their mindset significantly different from the older generation, or are we just getting less of the same thing?
0: It depends on the class and it depends on the people coming through. Um, But I would say, as looking at the student population as a whole, that I have had more success spreading the gospel to. The millennials, particularly, but I'm seeing it now in the Generation Z, the current generation. I have had more success than I ever had with Gen X. I had singular, I, just, I had singular, brilliant ones accept it and go with it, and spread it to others. In Gen Z, I mean in Gen X, but the millennials grasped it fast. And they wanted it. And they wrestled with the God of the Old Testament. They said that was our biggest deterrent to having a relationship with God. And, and so they liked what I presented and, and they ran with it. So I, I have hope for this generation that if things come together for them in their minds and they get total clarity and understanding not just about God, but about everything happening around us, and the Holy Spirit breaks out, and a lot of rain comes. I think it's just going to be amazing what God can do.
1: Absolutely. Where two or three are gathered, and it could be in I homes. Know
0: God likes be to use small situations to teach the greatest truths. I mean, you look at Jesus' greatest truths. It's true, the Sermon on the Mount you can't. is unparalleled, and that was a big group. But, but you look at the woman at the well, you look at uh, Nicodemus, um, mm-hmm. you look at the man by the pool of Bethesda, and so on. Some of the greatest stories of Jesus are with one person.
6: The woman caught in adultery when the masses left, and he was left standing with alone.
0: the woman. Isn't, isn't that an amazing statement? He was alone with her. <gasps> <laughs>
3: uh-huh.
6: Yeah, and I have to admit, I like to the talk with Nicodemus. Well, that, exactly. Um, the woman caught in adultery, I can imagine Jesus having picked up a stone, saying the one without sin can throw the first stone.
0: He's ready to throw and it to them. Go here.
6: <laughs> the, the demonstration of dropping it, and neither do I condemn you. You know, there's, there's so much. And I think the same is in the, the woman at the well and with Nicodemus these quiet conversations where each one felt like the Jews are going to stone the Samaritans or abuse them in some way. Nicodemus, his pride, you know, the conflict between his pride and his desire for truth uh, says, well, the desire for truth means I'll go and see him because my pride says I can't do it in the daytime. I'll do it at night. Jesus does it. And, and the, you know the the most quoted Bible text in Christianity is from that conversation. You know, for God to love mm-hmm. the world. Um, it's powerful that that so much and the you know the last couple verses of John is if I were to write all this down, the volumes it would take.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: And so we have just enough. <laughs> and that, it's, that's a, it's enough.
0: Yeah, it's enough. But but I think John's statement is well taken because he he chooses the stories that all the other gospel writers left out.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. Apparently, they didn't know what to do. It didn't fit their their theme, uh, which every gospel writer had a kind of a theme. It's just so to put that down at the end of John's gospel, that, you know, I could say so much more. I could write volumes more. It's just incredible. Mm -hmm.
8: I think it's significant that John was written last, and that in John we get the perspective of him looking back over you know fifty, sixty years mm-hmm. worth of reflection on it. When, when what God was doing was much more clear than it was to the the early gospel writers, um, who were closer to it and were kind of just just okay. Here you know here's what happened. Here's you know here's what he said. John comes along much afterwards and says here's what it means.
6: Mm-hmm. And that's to add to that, which is where I was going, was the the letters he wrote, first, second, third, John. I'm assuming that's the same mm-hmm. apostle I've uh, never actually thought about. but that's less um whether they came before his gospel or after was kind of the question, but the idea is, regardless, mm-hmm. he's painting out if it came before the gospel comes along and gives rationale as to why. If the gospel came first. His letter, particularly 1st John, comes along and says, let me tell you the outcome of my philosophy of the story and how it impacts my daily living. Love wins. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't know.
7: Why do you think he, he said that just, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved? No. Well, I think, I think John,
0: John had the closest relationship with Jesus of all the disciples. Mm-hmm. and he cast- Exactly. Exactly. He captured the essence of who jesus was
6: exactly. of course
8: he doesn't, say, he, he doesn't say he doesn't say i was the disciple that jesus loved more no i've heard but he
1: was called the beloved
4: i what? heard an amazing sermon on this many years ago that that i think really hit the nail on the head of why he said that because if you look at each time that he uses that phrase and you look at the context around it and the way i might say it is this was the disciple that jesus loved in spite of everything
3: mm-hmm.
4: this is the one that jesus continued to love he kept loving and it's totally amazing and and it was like i can't believe that he loved this disciple that was sort of the why he kept saying that is that even if i screwed up even no matter what was going on he loved me
0: even though i was
2: like, a thunder you, <laughs> yes yeah arguing about who could be first <laughs> i just wanted to make a comment we're all thinking you know this was Son of Thunder, this is one of the disciples who was so ready to call down fire and brimstone on that Samaritan village that had rejected Jesus. And I just thought, what a transformation. That's what's so cool about John being the only disciple at the foot of the cross who got to go through that process with Jesus and um, watch that, observe that, and how his focus Mm -hmm. is really the core of, of truth, which is love. Love God, love others. And And what a transformation he experienced
0: is just phenomenal to me. So John wrote my favorite verse in the New Testament. We love because he first loved us. Mm -hmm. That is a spiritual, natural law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We love only because he first loved us. Mm -hmm. So I remember
7: you saying that if you sense this love, it's only natural and inevitable that we would become like Christ. Um, so these people who fall away, have they never really experienced that
0: then? No, I think or? Hebrews is saying they have. Mm-hmm. That's what makes their fall away so permanent. So they're
8: really pushing okay.
0: against the natural. And, and I guess
7: they, it, they've, would it, I, they've experienced
8: the love, but they won't accept it.
0: Well, I, I believe yeah, they no, it it became partners with the Holy Spirit. And so I believe they accepted it fully and then turned away. So the
7: root of every sin I've read is selfishness. I mean, that's E. White, right, which was kind of an eye opener for me so is it self-exaltation like with judas he wanted power rather than the love you know that this love is weakness and I think i want
0: because power. the same trajectory as
2: lucifer took in heaven exactly wow. and isn't that the ultimate trajectory that each individual that uh, walks away from god rejects god Isn't that part of the torture that they'll recognize I had that kind of love extended to me and I rejected it? The you know teeth and all that kind of stuff. Isn't that what Jesus is referencing?
0: Yeah. I think Satan's hate and and just rabid uh thrusts at God's people is because he has agony all the time Mm -hmm. when he Mm -hmm. the truth Mm -hmm. about God in us.
7: Mm It, I couldn't quite hear agony all the time. When he
0: meets the truth about God in us, because that is what he once had.
1: Image bearers. Can't stand those image bearers.
0: Yeah. Shows how we so, messed up. Yeah. So I'm gonna call halt to this wonderful discussion and close with prayer. Um, would anybody like to volunteer to pray? Okay. Well, Okay, go ahead.
1: God, thank you so much for being who you are. A God that values freedom, that loves us unreservedly, undeservingly for creating us in your image. May we come to see that image for who you are and not who the enemy desires us or fools us into thinking through organizations and hierarchy and all the things that creates lies about you and your love. Go with each person this week and uh, please restore Jean's uh, password or whatever technical issues (laughs) existed that uh, can allow us to meet again and uh, discover more about you together. And trust you more
7: fully. We pray in your name. Amen.
6: Amen. Amen.